This is episode four of our CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore events podcast. This episode continues the 2004 annual enrichment conference titled Together in His Presence, Beholding the Wonder of the Trinity with speaker Bruce Ware. Here is session five, The Wonder of God's Triune Relationship. Let's just pause for a word of prayer, shall we, as we begin this evening. Lord, as we do come together tonight for this last session, at least in looking at the Trinity directly, looking at your own nature as one God existing and manifest in three persons. Oh Lord, our hearts long to know you as you are more fully And Father, we realize that in this area of study, probably more than any other that we would do in the Bible and in theology, we realize how much greater the truths are than we can comprehend because of how much greater you are than our finite minds can comprehend. So Lord, we look to you to be our teacher. We look to your spirit who is here. It's amazing. We talked about the spirit this morning and we realized the whole time we were talking about the spirit, he was here ministering in each one of our lives, helping us to see more clearly how he works in relation to the Son and the Father. And we trust right now, Holy Father, that you would command from heaven, that your spirit be at work again this evening to help us to see more clearly now particularly some of the ways in which things that we have looked at and thought about together can be put into practice and lived out in our relationships with one another. We need your help with this, Lord. We are very frail and feeble and finite people. You are infinite and great and glorious. We need your help, and we will give to you all of the praise and honor and glory for the good things you accomplished this week and in this evening. So thank you, Lord, in advance for the work you will do. We pray this in the great name of our Savior and Lord, Jesus. Amen. Well, this evening, we are looking at The Trinity beholding the glory of God's triune relationship expressed in the believing community. Expressed in the believing community. So what does this doctrine of the Trinity have to do with us? Of course, we've anticipated many of the things as I've looked through what I'm going to talk with you tonight. They amount to, in many cases, expansions of things that we have at least hinted at Uh, as we've been moving through this study together. And there are some wonderful ways in which we can rethink what it means to be the people of God, rethink what it means to be those created by God, to reflect what He is like in our relationships with one another. And so I'll, I'll uh, present to you this evening, and we have these uh, uh, enumerated, ten of them, ten lessons, we might think of it, uh, ten lessons 
in understanding what the Trinity has to do with our everyday lives. And before we dive into those, though, let me, let me just say that, again, we, we want to be sure we are thinking correctly about God's triune nature. He is one God. And the reason that this is so important is because we, we have to be sure that we do not jeopardize the equality of the three persons when we talk about their distinctiveness. Great harm would be done, not only to our understanding of God, but great harm would be done to the application in human relationships if we in any way minimized or jeopardized the fact that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share in common the one undivided divine essence. So Father is equal to Son, who is equal to Holy Spirit. These are equally and fully God, the personal expressions of the one God. While we uphold the equality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the language of Athanasius, you may remember from the first evening, Monday night, homoousius, of the same nature as the Father, he declared of the Son. While we declare the equality of the triune persons, an equality, by the way, that's even greater than an equality of two human beings. Because two human beings share in common the same kind of natures. We each have human natures that are in kind alike, in kind the same, but we don't share the identically same natures. Your human nature is a different human nature that, than is mine, although we have the same kind of natures. Men and women have the same kind of human nature, but they're two different natures. They don't share the same nature, they're two different natures. And, and so the equality that we have with one another, though still equal, is grounded in a less certain way than is true in the Trinity, where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share not just the same kind of nature, but the identically same nature. This is equality at the highest degree that it could be. Father equal with Son, equal with Holy Spirit in sharing, in possessing fully the undivided divine nature. So, my, equality is very important. And as we see, as we, this relates to human relationships, equality is a very important part of the application of this to our lives. And yet, in the Trinity, have we not marveled at this fact that while God is equal as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet there is a role relationship that is built into the Trinity. And this role relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit marks off, as it were, the various responsibilities and places that they perform they have in relation to one another. And that does not violate the equality. The two are held together. 
So the Trinity then, this beautiful picture of unity and diversity, of identity and distinction, of one and many, is manifest for us in the eternal God who is and was and is to come. All right. What can we learn? What can we take away in terms of lessons, practical applications for us in our own lives as people related to one another? Ten of them we'll look at together this evening. First, God intends that His very nature... Yes, his triune and eternal nature be expressed in our human relationships. God intends that his very nature, yes, his triune and eternal nature be expressed in our human relationships. Now, the image of God is a big topic. Do we have an extra hour tonight, Mark, to do this? No, I know we don't. I'm just kidding. Don't worry. The image of God is a big topic. It's more than this, but it's not less than this. In Genesis chapter 1, when God comes in verse 26, and the language even changes. You know, as you go through Genesis 1, let, us, uh, let, let there be light, let there be, let there be, let there be. And in verse 26, the language changes, and all of a sudden we read, let us make man in our image. It's very clear that the whole thing builds to indicate the epitome of God's creative work is about to take place. You know, it's, it's the insight of Psalm 8. When I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars that you ordain, what is man, you would think? You would think what is man in comparison to the, the, the canopy of stars out there? This vast universe, what is man? Yet, the psalmist continues, you have made him a little lower than the angels. The epitome of God's creative work is not Multnomah Falls. It is not Mount Hood. It is not the Milky Way galaxy. Do you want to see the epitome of God's creative work? There's several hundred of them sitting in this room. It's right here. Human beings created in his image. Let us make man in our image, verse 26 of Genesis 1, according to our likeness. Two words, image likeness, most commentators have concluded that they are virtually synonymous terms. Not much should be made of the difference. So why both? to emphasize the point. These people are like me. I'm making some that are like me. And so he uses two words to stress the point. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea. So this is the epitome of creation. They stand above the rest of the created order that is made. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the cattle and over everything that creeps on the earth, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God intended to build into the very notion 
of what it means to be image of God, not only that each of us is individually image of God, but that the image of God is, is meant to be expressed in social relationship. Hence, Genesis 2. Doesn't this prove the point? He makes a man who is in his image, breathes into him the breath of life, puts him in the garden, he cultivates it, has him name the animals. Hmm, he's naming pairs of them. So what does he learn and what does God say to the man? It is not good for man to be alone. It's the first not good in the Bible and it happens before sin. It happens before Genesis 3. It is not good for man to be alone. God intends his image of God creation to live in relationship. He intends his image as a triune God, as one who has a social relationship to be lived out in this way. He intends us to bear his image individually and corporately. Just as the Father bears the nature of God individually and corporately in relation to the Son and the Spirit. God intends his people then to picture, picture, represent what God is like in some finite, limited measure. What a privilege. What a privilege. Has it, has it dawned on you that one of the purposes of your life is to manifest to others what God is like? This is what it is to be in the image of God. And we do that, yes, individually. And, and uh, you know, goodness, I don't want to take anything away from the, the, importance of, of the importance of an individual manifesting the character of God. Think of Christ, for example, who is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. This individual man represents what God is like in the way he lives his life. I'm not, I'm not wanting to take away anything from the importance of the individual person bearing the image of God, but that's not the whole story. And he created them, male and female, in the image of God. He means for there to be an expression of his nature that is both individual, father, son, spirit, and together. Father, Son, Spirit as they relate together. Which brings up the second lesson, closely related. Eternal relationality calls for and calls forth a created community of persons. Not isolated individuals who happen to exist in close proximity, but interconnected interdependent relational persons in community. It is not enough just to exist together in close proximity, sort of the way a lot of uh, guys do in a dorm with other guys in college, or gals with other gals during college. You know, they exist in cl closer proximity than perhaps they'd like to, but is there really a relationship well, there may or may not be. 
But what God intends is for there to be a created community of persons in which there is an interconnection, interdependence, so that what one does affects another. What one can do depends upon another. Isn't this true in the Trinity? Haven't you seen this over and over this week? What one does affects another. So, the Holy Spirit is charged with empowering the Son so that He can carry out the will of the Father. What one does affects another. And what one does depends upon another. So God, the Father, designs what the purpose of the created order will be. He designs that His Son be the one who come and redeem sinners. The Father designs it, but His fulfillment of that design depends upon the Son obeying the Father. And the Son obeying the Father depends upon the Spirit empowering the Son. There is an interdependence, interconnection that is intrinsic to the very nature of God. Let me put this to you in different terms. When we insist on going solo, you know, the I did it my way strikes me I hadn't even thought of this till this moment. I did it my way. I mentioned to you earlier as the theme song of hell in terms of independence from God. But you know what also it is? I did it my way. My personal, isolated, individual way. It also indicates then our rejection of the way God is and his plan for us when we refuse help from one another when we refuse to be in relationship of accountability and interdependence with one another. We are living, when we live in isolated individuality, in violation of God's created design. It's that simple. Now, it's the American way. That's clear enough, isn't it? I mean, goodness, we can go back in my mind's memory to the Lone Ranger, you know? And, and you, we can have our series of heroes that, that have been put on the silver screen over the years. I don't even know who the, the most contemporary one of those is. Who would it be? Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis. Maybe so, yeah. Uh, you know, we, we, we've had our Lone Ranger, we've had our Superman, we've had our Rambo, you know. We, we, have these, we have these sort of idols, don't we, of the rugged individual, of the one who can do it all on his own, who doesn't need any help. And that becomes the ideal for us of what it is to be a real man, a real person, to be a success in this world is to do it ourselves, individually. Look at the Trinity. Even, you remember the point I made, this is probably on Tuesday morning. That was just yesterday. <laughs> wow. I'm with you, this has been a lot. 
Tuesday morning on the Father, I think this was when the, when the point was made there, some of the things, surely some of the things that the, the Father accomplished required, it necessitated the role of the Son and the Spirit. The clearest example is salvation. There had to be the joint work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to bring about our salvation. But do you remember the point I made? What about creation? Did God have to, did the Father have to employ the Son and the Spirit in creating the world? I, I think the answer to this is no. He didn't have to. But he is shareful. Remember? Remember when we talk, talked about that? He is shareful. He, he chooses to enlist even when he doesn't have to. The joint participation of others. And we see this in the Trinity, and we see this in the God-human relationship. We, 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 we just marvel at the fact God is so shareful. I'll, I'll talk, I'm talking about prayer in a little bit here, so I don't want to steal my thunder too much from there, but it fits right here. Prayer. Do you know one of the main purposes of prayer is invited participation in my work, says God. Invited participation. Does God need our prayers? We don't tell him anything he doesn't know. We don't give him any insight he doesn't have. We, 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 you know, what can we possibly provide God in prayer that he doesn't already know? In fact, Jesus even says in Matthew 6, 6, is it? Uh, you know, don't, don't worry about things that you lack. Your Father who is in heaven knows what you need before you ask it. Now you would think, given that theology, your father knows what you need before you ask it, you would think the conclusion would be then, well then don't bother asking. What's the point? Why ask if he already knows, he already cares, he already loves? What's the point of asking? Why isn't that the conclusion? Why instead is the conclusion, so seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Why is the conclusion you can have confidence when you pray because your Father already knows what you have? Prayer is God's invitation to us to join Him in the work He's already designed. He's already ordained. But He wants us to get in on it. He didn't have to do it that way. Why did he? Because he is that committed to interdependent, interconnected relationship. He is in the Trinity and he is in the created order in relation to his people. Yes, the relationships in the Trinity call for and calls and they call forth a created community of persons. I think we have to think very hard about this in our churches. It's, it's one of the reasons a small group ministry is such a good thing. It, it's one way in which we can establish in our churches communities of interconnection and interdependence. Oftentimes, Sunday school classes don't do this. 
that it's too short of a time on Sunday morning, it's too rushed, it's too big. There's lots of reasons why Sunday school classes usually don't do this. Sometimes they happen informally, just couples get to know each other, families get together, and they become close friends, and, you know, and that's great. But boy, don't, don't church leaders want to strategize in how to make what ought to be happen? Shouldn't, shouldn't they work hard at putting into place structures that endeavor by the structure to fulfill what ought to be? Now we all know that those things can become formalistic and legalistic. We know that. But, you know, goodness, are we going to throw the baby out with the bathwater? Are, 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 we, are we going to forsake structure because it can be abused or, or it can become the form in, that, that takes over the, the substance of the matter? Let, let's think carefully about how we can strategize to build Trinity-like Triune-nature-of-God-like communities of interdependence and interconnection with one another. Working with each other. Working only because of one another. You know, and when you think about it, goodness, think of the Spirit's work in assigning gifts to the body of Christ. Isn't that what this is about? Every member in, in the body ha has been given a gift. Why? So that each one can edify others in the body of Christ. I mean, here again, don't, don't you see? This is the mind of God. This is, this is the nature of God, the mind of God, the plan of God, the design of God implemented in spiritual gifts to the body of Christ. So that we are necessarily connected, interdependent, because we need each other. We need what each other brings to this sanctification process, this growing in Christ-likeness. Eternal relationality in God. I'm still on point two, I'm sorry, I haven't moved to, yeah, there it is, point two. Eternal relationality in God then calls for and calls forth this created community of persons. Number three. Number three. The relationships in the Trinity exhibit so beautifully a unity that is not redundancy and a diversity that is not discord. The relationships in the Trinity exhibit so beautifully a unity that is not redundancy and a diversity that is not discord. Think again of the metaphor that I, I mentioned a while back. I can't remember which session it was. Of harmony in music versus unison. Unison is a kind of, well, you know, you can push this analogy too far, and I know it won't work if you do, but unison is a kind of unity with redundancy, right? You have 
several voices singing the same note, you know, and, and, and you could hear that with just one voice, but, but here you have several voices, so there's a kind of built-in redundancy to unison. But there is a, a kind of unity that is expressed with harmony that is glorious, that is glorious, so, so, that, you, so that you have a chord played on the piano. You, you have different parts sung by different singers. You, you, you have a soprano and an alto and a tenor and a bass. And my, together it is a unity, but it's a unity of harmony. This, this is not redundancy. Every part matters. Every voice contributes. Something distinctive, something new, something needed for the song to be what it is. This is the Trinity, isn't it? This is the Trinity. We have a three-part harmony in the Trinity. A trio. A trio. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Totally unified. Totally unified in singing one song, fulfilling one purpose, accomplishing one goal, uh, driving toward one mission, but each contributing in that accomplishment differently, uniquely. Each part necessary. Boy, that, that, that is a glorious unity. Unity without redundancy. But then there also is then a diversity without discord. Think of music again. Think of music. Do you know the word cacophony? Cacophony, cacophonous sounds. I mean, this is like if Dean were to come up on the piano and just started banging like a three-year-old would. That's, that's just noise. You know, that's diversity. That's to be sure. It's diverse. But it is a mess. It, it is discordant. It, it, there, there is nothing to it that is compelling. There is nothing unified. There, there is nothing that moves it in one common direction. It is a mess. And I, I fear, I fear that so many of our churches are places where we celebrate our diversity, our individuality. I know in the Southern Baptist Convention, of which I have become a part since my teaching at Southern Seminary, boy, those Southern Baptists really like to celebrate the priesthood of the believer. And by that they sort of mean, nobody can tell me what I believe or what I want to do. It's this sort of, wow, what was the word you used, Mark? Militant autonomy, militant autonomy. There, there is this sort of militant individualism that is packed into this notion of the priesthood of the believer, which, by the way, among the conservatives in the SBC, they've rejected this, this sort of militant autonomy because that's what gave license to the liberals to teach whatever they wanted in the seminaries. You know, the seminary I teach at, Southern Seminary, is a modern-day miracle, it, 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 ten years ago, this school was fully liberal. Ten years ago. And part of what gave rise to the liberalism of Southern Seminary was the priesthood of the believer so understood. So understood. 
No one has the right to tell me. I'm, I am a priest before God. I am an individual with my rights before Him. Nobody has the right to tell me what I believe or what I do. You know what this produces? Diversity, to be sure. To be sure. But it is a diversity riddled with discord. So where do you find the diversity that is not discordant? The diversity that is in fact harmonious. Where, where, where different notes, yes, and how important those different notes are, but those different notes all sound to one song. They, they sing the same song. They're on the same page. They're moving in the same direction. Boy, in the Trinity, don't, don't we celebrate the unity and the diversity of God? And in the church, ought we not have a proper unity and a proper diversity? A unity that is not redundant and a diversity that is not discordant. A harmonious unity. Let's move on. Number four. The most marked characteristic of the Trinitarian relationships is the presence of an eternal and inherent relationship of authority and submission. Authority and submission are good for they are expressive of God. I'll read it again. It's up on the screen as well. The most marked characteristic of the Trinitarian relationships is the presence of an eternal and inherent relationship of authority and submission. So, authority and submission are good, for they are expressive of God. Boy, if this isn't countercultural, I don't know what is. We live in a culture that despises authority at every level. You name it. Uh, goodness, police, uh, government of any kind, children and their parents in so many cases, school officials, school teachers. Where, where is the school, the school children, the classroom out there that shows respect for their teachers. Marriage relationships, we'll talk about this separately in a little bit. Marriage relationships, uh, church relationships with elders and their congregations. We'll talk about that later as well. Where, where, wherever we look in American culture, we see a disdain for authority. Now, I, I know we talked about this briefly before. This is not surprising in one sense because it is at the very heart of sin. Why do we despise authority? Fundamentally, because in sin, we despise God's authority. Atheism is a taught disposition. Did you know that? In the heart of every person, God has placed his law. 
God has made it evident in creation, according to Romans 1, that there is a God. Why is atheism out there when we have this creation? Answer, we hate authority. And we want to be in charge. It's that simple. We want to be captains of our own destiny. We want to govern our own lives. And one of the lessons of the Trinity is that God loves what we despise. Namely, rightful authority and submission relationships. God loves it. God is it. It's an amazing thing. So my friends, I just encourage you as you think about this fact that this is God, that you pray to the Lord and ask Him to help you, help us learn to love what God loves. Learn to embrace what is eternally true in God. And that is to accept rightful authority. One thing I have observed living in the South, although people tell me from the further South that I'm not really in the South, at Louisville, Kentucky, it's right on the Ohio River, but one thing I have noticed about living further South is that there still are remnants in the South of respect for uh, pe people who are older. You know, so, so the children generally in the South, little children, you know, they, they, if they have something to say to you, it's always with ma'am or sir. Yes, ma'am. No, sir. You know, it just, there is a kind of built-in respect that I, I really do like. I really do like. I just wish that it was more than a formal statement. You know, you, you'd wish that this was heartfelt and, and, and it continued, you know, in life. But at least it's a step in the right direction. At least, there, at least in this culture, this part of American culture, there still is some vestige of rightful respect for authority, for, for those who are elderly and so on. But this, this is the exception rather than the rule. And even in the South, I doubt that children in their homes are much different as they get older with their parents, much different as they get older with their teachers. It tends to be the little ones who are this way. They sort of outgrow it after a while. Except the Christian guy, the Christian ones. Goodness, some of the ones who come to the seminary, so respectful, almost too much. You know, just, just amazing. What we need to do is have that kind of thing, but pervade Christian communities. Can you imagine anything more noticeable to the world than a Christian community where there is a wholehearted, healthy respect for authority. My, people at their workplace, your co-workers would look at how you talk about the boss, how you respond to directives, and they would marvel at how you take this seriously how you actually listen and want to do what your boss says, that you respect him or her. I mean, this, this would just be astonishing. In your neighborhoods, homes with 
this, this kind of relationship with husbands and wives would be so noticeable to your, to your neighbors. The, the most remarkable single feature in this relational community that we call the Trinity is this presence of authority and submission. Now, maybe just maybe I'll spend just one minute on this because some of you may wonder if this is true. Is that the most remarkable characteristic? I think it is because of the very name Father to identify the one who is, as it were, on top and Son. What defines the relationship more than the Father has authority over the Son? The son comes to do the will of his father. The son yields to, to his father, speaks the word of his father, seeks to carry out what his father wants him to do. This, this more than anything else, defines what distinguishes father, son, and spirit in the Trinity. Well, I submit to you, if this is the case, then we need to work hard to be countercultural in our communities, in our homes, in our churches, we need to embrace authority. There is a book that is currently out of print, or it would have been on the table out here, by John Kitchen, entitled Embracing Authority. It is a very, very good book. I read a pre-publication copy of this book that Dr. Kitchen sent me, and I wrote a little blurb commending it that's on the back of the book. My only suggestion, serious suggestion, was to change the title. His title was Accepting Authority. You know how much I like the word embrace. Marvel, I mean, words like this. And I said, you know what? Accepting authority is just not strong enough. It just does not say it. How about embracing authority? And he wrote back and he said, yes, that is it. That's, that's, that's what the book is about. And it's a really helpful book. Uh, so go on Amazon.com. I'm sure it'll be back in print again soon. John Kitchen, just like the room in your house where the refrigerator is. John Kitchen, embracing authority. We need to embrace rightful authority and embrace rightful submission. That's the way it works in the Trinity. Embrace Rightful submission. Number five. <clears throat> Equality of essence does not conflict with distinct distinction of roles. In God and among us, both must be embraced and honored. Equality of essence does not conflict with distinction of roles. In God and among us, both must be embraced and honored. One of the reasons that I set this point aside as a separate point is because there is an argument now that is over 25 years old that is still prominent in the egalitarian movement in our country. The egalitarian movement, by the way, I've mentioned that word. I maybe didn't explain what it is. The egalitarian movement is a movement, I'm thinking here of evangelicals, uh, evangelical Christians, who hold the view that there is no relevant re relevancy in the distinction between male and female when it comes to husbands and wives in the home or 
men and women in service in the church. Gender is no more relevant than eye color or hair color. So husbands and wives in their homes are to have a mutual submissive relationship, submitting to one another equally. And in the church, women should have the opportunities to serve in any capacity that a man serves in. So, promoting the ordination of women. Okay, that's the egalitarian movement. One of their long-standing arguments is that if you say that there is a distinction in role between men and women, if you say it's the husband who has the authority and the wife who must submit, and that is sort of a fixed reality vis-a-vis -vis their genders, the husband, because he's male, the wife, because she's female, have these respective responsibilities, he to have authority, she to submit. If that's the case, then you cannot avoid the conclusion you are claiming he is superior to her who is inferior. And I stand before you to say the Trinity disproves this argument. The Trinity disproves it. Because you have in God, as I mentioned before, not only common natures that I and my wife Jody would have because we have the same kind of human natures. We're both equally human and sharing the same kind of nature. You have in God the possession of the identically same natures. Nature, singular, sorry. Identically same nature possessed by Father, Son, and Spirit. And yet you have the role distinctions. I have come to earth to do the will of my Father. So it is just not true that distinction of roles indicates one is superior over the other. And in fact, in Scripture, it is so clear that this is not the case. In Genesis 1, he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them Male and female in the image of God. But then, chapter 2, turn the page. What happens? He creates man. It's not good for man to be alone. He creates woman for what reason? To be the help meet to the man. He puts her by her created design in a supporting role. And on the basis of that, Paul indicates in Ephesians 5, we'll come to this in a few moments, there is an establishment of a relationship in which the husband has headship over the wife. Established in the very created order, and yet male and female image of God. Both equally human, equally of value before God, but distinct in roles. Hmm, how did we get, how did that happen, I wonder? Look at the Trinity. Here's where you see the pattern that's reproduced in human relationship. Equality of essence and distinction of roles go together. In God and among us, both must be embraced and honored. 
Number six, lesson number six. Trinitarian roles and marriage. Equality of essence and distinction of husband and wife roles. I mentioned Genesis 2 to you already that in this creation of the man and then the woman, God establishes the headship of the man. Now, you know, some people argue uh, when looking at Genesis 2, some people say, well, you know, really God's point was to indicate that one needed the other. He could have created the woman first. It would have accomplished the same thing. Suppose he had made the woman first. And then she names the animals, and she discovers that she's alone in comparison to these animals who have pairs. And God says to her, it is not good for the woman to be alone, and so then he makes a man to complete her. It would do the same thing. It was really basically arbitrary that God created the man first, and then the woman. Do you know the problem with this? Evidently, Paul doesn't think this way. Because in two passages, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 5 through 7, and 1 Timothy 2, 12 to 15, 1 Corinthians 11, 5 to 7, 1 Timothy 2, 12 to 15, in both those passages, Paul makes the very same point. Why is it Women should not serve in the church in certain capacities as those who teach and have authority over men. Why should they not do this? For it was Adam who was created first, not the woman. So evidently it mattered. Evidently God intended that the, the man being created first and then the woman establishes the headship, the priority of the man over the woman. Perhaps we wouldn't have gotten the point were it not for Paul's, catch it now, inspired interpretation for us of what God in fact did. Well, given that, given that in Genesis 2, then we realize, boy, God really did intend then for there to be this thing called male headship. Male headship. So let me say something on this to men and women respectively in relation to living out equality of essence, distinction of roles in homes as married couples. First of all, something to the men I want to say. I want to say two things, two things to you. First, men, those, any of you who is married in here or perhaps one day will be married, which probably is most of you, most of you men. First, realize that God has invested in you a special responsibility for the relationship with your wife, for, if you have children, for the spiritual nurture of your home that is not given in the same way to your wife. You bear responsibility before the Lord in a unique way. Think, for example, in Ephesians 6, where Paul 
tells children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is good. Honor your father and mother. Now notice, parents, both of them. Honor your father and mother, both of them. So the next verse, you would think he would just continue the both thought, but then he says, fathers, do not exasperate your children, but nurture them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Fathers. Do you know, gentlemen, how much blessing you can bring to your homes, how much pain that can be avoided if you embrace your divine calling to be the spiritual head of your home? If you forsake the sinful tendencies either toward abuse of your authority, a heavy-handed, mean-spirited, harsh, commanding, unloving headship, or, more common today, negligence, just flat-out apathy in regard to your God-given responsibility of headship. Just plain old apathy. Why? Because it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to come home from work, pick up the paper, watch the news, and let the mother take care of the kids. It's a lot easier. It's a lot easier when you go to church to, you sit here, the mother sits here, your wife sits here, and then the kids sit there. And so who conveniently is responsible to take care of the kids during church and try to help them to learn to worship and try to help them to behave themselves and while dad is piously listening to the pastor. What's mom doing? Doing her best to try to do what he ought to be doing. Gentlemen, it, it is in you and in me the effect of sin to want to abdicate responsibility. It is a sinful inclination in us to want to abdicate responsibility or lash out in harshness. What it takes is spirit-wrought commitment, passion, resolve to be spiritual leaders as we are called to be. So on the one hand, boy, embrace God's call for you to be spiritual leader. Here's the second thing I want to say to men. Do you realize what God thinks of those men who do not view their wives as their equals? in creation, and in Christ. Do you remember 1 Peter 3, 7? Now, verses 1 to 6 is to women, but verse 7, he just gives us one, but it's to, it's to the men. And what does he say? Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel. So here we have the acknowledgement that she is unlike you. You do have headship. You do have authority over her. So... You know, live with her in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel. That's not where it ends. The second half of the verse. 
and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, lest your prayers be hindered. So gentlemen, what does God think of the man who looks in a demeaning way upon his wife, who speaks to her in sarcastic barbs that put her down, who, who speaks to her disrespectfully and unlovingly and does not grant her honor? You know what your prayer life will do? Head south quick. Your prayers are hindered. Why? God's saying, I don't care what you think when you think that way about your wife. Why? Goodness. This, this is where Galatians 3.28 comes in. You know, in the egalitarian movement, this is the Magna Carta verse, you know, of the egalitarian movement. Misunderstood. This is where it comes in. There is no distinction in Christ between Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. All are one in Christ. And of course the context there, look at the context. That does not mean there's no distinction in any sense whatsoever. It means both are sons of God. And it is sons, by the way. The TNIV translates it children. And it is sons. And why is it important that it's sons? Because sons have the inheritance in the home. And this passage is about the inheritance that you receive as sons of God. No distinction between male or female. She with you, husbands, is the recipient of all the riches of Christ. She with you, an inheritor of the full character of Christ, remade in her. She is made remade just as much Christ-like as you will be. She with you, equal in Christ, in every way, the possessor of all the riches of Christ. Grant her honor. So, now, do you see how both of these things reflect the Trinity? Grant her honor, equality. Be the responsible leader. You are the designated head of the home. Trinity. It's both true, isn't it? Both of these things are true in the Trinity. Wives, let me say something to you about your role, your designated role in submission. First, two things. First, is it enough before God to grit your teeth, buck up, and say, okay, I'll do it. Okay, if that's what the Bible says, I'll do it. Is that enough? And the answer is no. No. The kind of obedience God wants from all of us on any matter, including this one, is joyful, heartfelt, willing, glad-hearted obedience. So what, what is the kind of submission that a wife should render for her husband? It is a submission that 
longs to help, longs to serve, longs to assist in any way that will be helpful to God's calling upon his life in fulfilling what God has called him to do. It, it really is, as Genesis 2 says, the woman is created as the helpmeet, the helper to the man in assisting him in fulfilling his responsibilities before the Lord. So this is glad-hearted, willing, joyful. Hmm. Do you know that every passage in the New Testament that speaks to wives has one thing in common. Every one of them has one statement. Wives, submit to your husbands. Now, there are other things stated in a number of those passages, but that one is in every passage. How many weddings have you recently been to where the S word is unmentioned? I've been to lots of Christian weddings in, in the past years. You know, we're kind of at that age now where, well, of course, we always have students, you know, in, in my line of work, there's always another invitation coming in the mail, you know, with, with students who are getting married. And I, honestly, we've been to, to weddings in the past three years, I, I don't know, maybe a dozen of them or so, and I can only recall one where in the wedding vows, the word submission was used in relation to the wife to the husband. These are Christian weddings of conservative people. Why is it the one thing God says in every text we don't want to say? Because we don't think about it the way God does. It's that simple. We have been influenced by our culture that much that what our culture thinks about this, we think about it. Here's one more thing. On the, on the same point, wives submit to your husbands joyfully. The one passage with the strongest admonitions where... Wives are told not only to submit, but the word obey is used, the same word that's used of children and their parents. Now, it's not used in a command, wives obey your husbands, but it's used in this way. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. It's used positively. I mean, it's, it, it's a statement that Peter brings in as a positive statement of how wives ought to be it's in 1 Peter 3. And you know what the context is? Of a wife living with an unsaved husband. The strongest language in the New Testament in a passage of a wife with an unsaved husband. So, you know what? I, I think God means it. I think he does. I think, I think he... And, and why, why does he say in Ephesians 5... Wives, submit to your husbands in everything. He does, by the way. Why does he say in everything? Because think of the analogy. Wives are to submit to their husbands as what submits to what? Ephesians 5. As the church submits to Christ. Well, how much is the church to submit to Christ? Everything. Everything. So if, if this is to picture Christ in the church, 
that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And wives, submit to your husbands the way the church submits to Christ in everything. So God means it. Okay, here's the second thing I want to say to wives. Submission can be very difficult. Unlike the church and Christ, where the church can be confident anything that Christ commands of the church will be for her good. Anything Christ commands of the church will be wise. Anything Christ expects of the church will be for good purposes. Husbands are not always like Christ. In fact, sometimes they are pitifully unlike Christ. Submission can be very, very difficult. Wives, you are not commanded to retrain your husbands, though you might endeavor to do so by praying fervently and living that quiet, submissive life that Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3. But you're not, you're, you're not responsible for their behavior and misbehavior. They are. And boy, will they give an account. You can count on it. What you are responsible for is you. You, not them. So it, it may be very difficult in some of your cases. And there may be times when, when goodness, I mean, in the, in the extreme cases, there may be times when life or children's well-being is threatened because of an abusive husband. And then I would, I would say there are other principles that come to bear in cases like this that would justify a wife separating for a period of time in order to seek the, the healing and the restoration of this man so that she can then, some weeks, months later, come to submit to him as she ought. And I know there are those extreme cases, and they can be enormously painful. But here's, here's my point, wise. For, the, for most of you, in most of your marriages, you are not responsible for your husband. He is responsible before the Lord. You're responsible for you. So before the Lord, make this an issue of spiritual relationship. To be before your husband in a way that honors the Lord. And God will honor you. He will bless you enormously as you seek to honor the Lord by being faithful to fulfilling what he called for you. Trinitarian roles and marriage then, husbands and wives, manifest the relationship of the Trinity. Number seven, Trinitarian roles in the church. Trinitarian roles in the church, equality of essence and distinction of elder congregation roles. Boy, you know, we realize in 1 Corinthians eleven three, this statement that God is the head of Christ uh, and that uh, man is the head of the woman and Christ is the head of man, that that very verse establishes the beginning of a section in 1 Corinthians 11 which deals with the role of qualified men as authorities in the church. 
Why should women have their head covered? As a symbol of the authority that is invested in the male leadership. So 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, in stating the importance of seeing the headship of the man, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman, is to apply not only to marriage, but in the church, where qualified elders who are male are those in leadership positions in the church. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, Paul says, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now, I find it very interesting. That's 1 Timothy 2, 12. I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. I find it very interesting that the discussion that comes after that then in chapter 3 is qualifications of elders. And the two things that distinguish the office of elder from deacon, which is also in 1 Timothy 3, is being able to teach, able to teach, and exercising authority, managing your household. So here, here we have these two qualities of elder, and then you see them again in 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, where, where Paul speaks of those uh, who deserve double honor, who, who preach the word of God, especially, or who, who lead the church of God, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So here you have the same two qualities again, leading, preaching, teaching. Leading, teaching in 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 2.12, I don't allow a, a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now, here's the point I'm driving at in this. In 1 Timothy 2.12, it would have been easy for Paul then to say, instead, I don't allow a woman to be an elder. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he focuses on the functions, not the office. The functions, not the office. And I think this is enormously significant because questions arise, for example, what about women teaching a mixed, that is, men and women, Sunday school class? Would that be appropriate? She's not preaching on Sunday mornings. She's not the pastor of the church. She's not an elder. But can she teach an adult Sunday school class, mixed men and women in the room? Well, 1 Timothy 2.12, again, doesn't say... I don't allow a woman to be an elder. I think that would, would not indicate necessarily that it would be wrong for her to teach this class. But he says instead, I don't allow a woman to carry out these functions that are, yes, are elder responsibilities, but I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So my answer to that would be no, she should not. It should be a qualified, qualified man who teaches that mixed class. And, and I think you can, you can apply this then in other settings that were not true in the New Testament that are true in our context. And there are tons of those, aren't there? So asking yourself the question whether or not teaching and exercising authority is part of what is in view in this particular thing. And the point in all of this is to say that in this relationship too, the Trinity is manifest with equality of men and women, but distinction of roles. And remember, goodness, we've talked about this in so many ways through the week. Remember, the Son submitting to the Father, 
the Spirit submitting to the Son and the Father. No chafing, no bucking, no resentment, uh, no sense in which they feel that they've missed out, missed out, that they, they haven't been able to, to do what the Father does. They accept and embrace and revel in what God has given them to do. Not only does this relate to role of women, but to all of us, Hebrews chapter 13, I mentioned this just in passing uh, earlier, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, where the author of the Hebrews says, for all of us in a church under elders to obey your leaders as those who have charge of your souls. Wow, what an enormously important statement. And so here we have this indication, men and women alike under the elders of a church should view those elders as something more than, I don't know, the, the, the appointed spokespersons for the church. You know, just people who speak on behalf of the church. These are, in fact, the leaders of the church in the New Testament understanding of a local church. We have responsibility to obey them, to follow them. Now, we're congregationalists. I, I do think that the term elder rule is misleading. I, I would encourage you to use what I have heard here already this week, elder-led I think that's a much healthier term that, that is prone to less misunderstanding. Elder-led, not elder-ruled. Why? Because we are ultimately congregationalists insofar as we believe the church does have the responsibility if the elders are suggesting a way forward or providing some kind of doctrinal understanding that the church as a whole believes is off course then the church has the right and responsibility to speak up. But if that is not the case, if there isn't an objection of doctrine or principle, then what ought the church do when the elders say, this is our plan? They ought to obey their leaders as those who have charge for their souls and pray for them goodness, as a wife would pray for her husband who has this responsibility to be spiritual leader in the home. Congregations should pray for those elders that God would lead them forward in accomplishing what he wants through them. So here again, Trinity manifest, equality of essence, all the people of God equal, but God has ordained an authority structure with elders and congregation. Number eight, Number eight, Trinitarian roles and prayer. I've talked about this briefly already, just a word here. Ephesians 2.18 is so helpful because it just summarizes the, the right way to think of the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2.18, Paul writes this. For through him, and of course this, this is Christ, for through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. That's a short verse, very simple, but isn't it interesting what it's saying? For through Christ, we both have, that's Jew and Gentile alike, we both have 
our common access in one spirit to the Father. So what, should, what is the paradigm we should have in mind in prayer? Well, the Father has supremacy. So we pray to the Father. We have access to the Father. But what right do we have to go to Him? On what basis can we approach Him? We can only come to the Father through the one man, the mediator. We have one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So we come in the name of Jesus. Those are not throwaway words at the end of a prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. If you know what they mean, it's the only way your prayer makes it to the throne. We come in His name. We come by His authority. We, become, we come because of His right to approach the Father in His righteousness. He's the mediator. So we come to the Father. We pray to the Father. That's what Jesus said to pray, right? Our Father who art in heaven, pray this way. So we pray to the Father through the mediation of the Son and in the power of the Spirit. Verse 18 again, for through Him, Christ, we have our access in one Spirit to the Father. The Spirit is the one who moves in us to pray, causes us to, to think and feel what God wants us to as we bring these petitions before the Lord. Now, let me just say one more thing because I, I mentioned in another session how, how so often we train our children to pray, Dear Jesus. And I guess it, it just feels better. It, it sounds more warmer or something. I don't know why we do this, why this has happened, but, but it's become so common. Uh, and, and I will say this, there's no prohibition in the Bible to praying to Jesus or the Spirit. It never says, don't do this. But also, there is never any encouragement to do it. Everything we read indicates this pattern. Praying to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Spirit. An exception could be, possibly be, Acts 7, where Stephen, just before he is stoned and killed, he looks and he sees Jesus at the top of this uh, a ladder that, that, that's set there. Jesus is welcoming him, and he prays and he says, Lord Jesus... Receive my spirit. Possible exception. So, you know, I, I don't want to sort of lower the boom on any reference to dear Jesus. But I do want to say this. The norm, clearly, clearly the norm is to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus and help our children realize the privilege to go in Jesus' name to the supreme authority over all. What a privilege. The Father from whom every good gift comes. Worship, number nine. Trinitarian roles and worship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the passages that I have there I think are helpful in thinking about worship from a Trinitarian way. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, that's the passage we looked at earlier that indicates every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So ultimately, whether we state it explicitly or not, 
We should, as Christian people, recognize that our worship of Jesus ultimately redounds to the glory of the Father. We don't have to state that every time, but we should think it, we should know it, we should recognize it. Uh, worshiping Jesus is ultimately to the glory of the Father. And then Philippians 3.3 in the next chapter, where Paul indicates that our worship is done in the Spirit, where we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. So the focal point of our worship is Jesus. The focal point of Christian worship is Jesus. He is the one whom the Father intends us to honor as Lord, whom the Spirit works in us to say, Jesus is Lord. Both Father and Spirit endorse the notion that Jesus is central in our worship. The gospel is central in our proclamation. Uh, the worship of Jesus is at the core of what the church is gathered to do. But ultimately, we recognize that Jesus wants to give honor to the Father as he is worshiped to the ultimate glory of the Father. And all of this worship is empowered by the Spirit. It is done through the Spirit's empowerment. Last, tenth point, and we'll be done. Number ten. Because God eternally exhibits equality of essence and diversity in role, we can know that this is good. It's in God, so it is good. God is good, his ways are good, and his design for human life and relationships are good. Haven't you as parents wanted so many, many times to get this through to your children? That what they don't think necessarily is good, eating your carrots, or whatever the case may be, is in fact for their good. You know, not, not playing in the middle of the street, but playing in, in the yard. Oh, that sounds restrictive. But you know what? It is for your good. So here's my point. Don't we realize there are many, many times in life where what we instinctively think is good is not good. And we have to be trained other, otherwise. So here we have God's retraining program by looking at the Trinity. The Trinity helps us see what good really is. So God, who is good, is one in essence and three in persons. He is unified, but he is diversified. He is equal, and yet there is authority and submission. This is all good because it is all God. And as this is manifest then in human relationships, wives and husbands, congregations and elders, people living with one another in community can be confident when we live out what God is like, we enter into good. And we can know that and be grateful for it.
All right, 10 lessons that come from the Trinity. I know there are many more we could do, but let's just close in a word of prayer and thank God for who he is and the privilege of being able to live like him in increasing measure. Father, we are deeply grateful for the privilege we have had these days of examining more carefully what you're like, looking at your nature, looking at the triune persons of the Godhead. And we're grateful, Lord, for this evening, for the opportunity to think through some of the practical applications of this, what it means to our lives as human beings. So, Lord, please help us to go from here with a fresh vision of your greatness, to, 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 to be amazed and awestruck at how incredible you are, Lord God, to marvel at Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in relationship to one another. And Lord, to see afresh then how we should live in light of this. Help us, Lord, to embrace the fact we are made in your image and all that that means to live like you for your glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Hold up your hold up your manual. <clears throat> three pens later, it's full. You have just earned three credits. Okay. I don't mean to make light of it. I just I'm writing as fast as I can. I'm using three different pens. I can't keep track of it. Uh, Bruce, thank you's not enough. In fact, before we go any further, Bruce, I'm going to ask you to come back up here. Uh, I need some people here. Kevin Ferguson, would you come? Um, who else can I grab? Bard Marshall, would you come? I know, I'm doing this rather impromptu here. Um, Scott Roberson, would you come? I'm just asking just uh, three guys, faces I know and see, but as we think of... Bruce is teaching over the last two years here, and then what he represents uh, by way of being a theologian. You know, when uh, you say, we have a theologian coming to speak to us, everybody kind of yawns and says, oh boy, nap time or something. And that is not true with uh, Dr. Bruce Ware. And you can hear it in his voice, you can hear it in what drives him the passion for God, and he is and has taken a stand for what is true. And in the preparation of those who would minister, we need hundreds of Dr. Bruce Wares. And we need to pray for him and for the school, for Albert Moeller, for all that has gone on there, uh, pray protection. And I'm going to ask you three as representatives to uh, pray over Bruce. Uh, right now, so I'm going to give you this microphone, Bart, and we'll let you lead out, praying protection for Bruce and thanking God for what he's, he's brought to us, too. Two of you can pray in a sec. 
Heavenly Father, we come to you through the name and merit of the Lord Jesus Christ, thanking you for this access. Thank you for your eternal word. And we thank you for gifted men who are able to communicate your word. We thank you for the lessons that we have heard, things we have been reminded of, and new insights that we have gained. This week, help us, our God, to let it not only penetrate our minds, but our hearts, our lives. Thank you for Bruce Ware. I pray your guidance in his life, and may this message be carried to scores of people and thousands of churches and bring change for your glory. It's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Father God, we are so grateful for the ministry that we have participated in this week with Bruce. We thank you for how you have gifted him. We thank you for how he has communicated your word powerfully through the power of your spirit. We thank you that we've been drawn to a clearer picture of you, the Trinity. Father, we pray right now in the name of Jesus for protection for Bruce and his family and his ministry in the college. And God, we pray that you might continue to use him mightily in Jesus' name. Father, I would pray for Bruce in his role as a man, as a husband, as a father. The things he's been saying tonight are uh, controversial in our culture. Uh, they can be hard words for some to hear, uh, but they're true words because they come from your word. And Lord, I'm sure the enemy would like nothing better than try to undermine Bruce's teaching by attacking his family, his marriage, his children. So Father, we pray for the power of your spirit to surround his life, his home, Preserve this family. May it be an example to others that your word is true and good. And you give us your truth for our good and our joy. And may your joy permeate his life and his family. And Father, may we learn from him not only as a teacher, but as an example of a godly man. And we thank you for him in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, gentlemen. Bruce, thank you so much.